if I'm completely honest, a lot of this stuff does not sound good as like a, you know, if, if society agrees upon what sounds good, this stuff does not. <laughs> Welcome to Discovering Design, a podcast featuring a different guest each episode recounting their initial career, what sparked their interest in the creative arts, and how they pivoted to a full-time role in user experience design. Our guest for this last episode of Season 4 is Aaron Cicchini Butler. Aaron began their professional career as a composer. We'll learn about growing up in eastern New York along the Vermont border, what it's like to attend the most prestigious college for musicians, and why not getting into Dartmouth could be the best thing to happen to you. And with that, I'd like to introduce Aaron Giacchini Butler. I grew up in a, a tiny town called Salem, New York. I had, you know, 40 something kids in my graduating class. There was one stoplight in the town. The grocery store was 30 minutes away, so complete tiny, tiny rural area, a cornfield at the end of my, my street. One of the benefits of living in a town that small is you can do everything. You know, you go out to play for the soccer team and they're like, please play. We need 11 people. <laughs> you're, not, you're not trying out for anything, right? My dad was the music teacher at that school, so band and chorus, and he started me on piano when I was like three. I loved it. He was a pretty intense teacher in terms of just like no nonsense. Like if you're not going to play the right notes, get out of the piano room sort of thing. It worked really well for me. I got to go to school starting in kindergarten. I'd go into the band room 30 minutes before school started, help set up stands and chairs and put, you know, scores in concert order. So it was, I loved it. I always found funny about my dad is he never wrote any music. It was just always like instructor, could play a lot of instruments well, um, never wrote a single thing. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She parented us. I have three younger siblings, so. And then in high school, I got, um, you know, I got into a lot of the the things that people will, will tease me for, uh, Coldplay and John Mayer. And John Mayer is that favorite guitarist that can do no wrong. The The best guitarist, this is probably not a super common answer, but like uh, Jack White. I feel like I could give him like a shoestring and he would shred on it, you know? <laughs> I went to, to Berkeley. It's a music college in Boston and it's focused on uh, jazz and contemporary music. I was a songwriting major, which is something that doesn't exist at very many colleges. Piano was my principal instrument. I had a lot of roommates who were all um, into electronic production and design. And so I spent a lot of time learning about production as well, which was fun. Spending time in Pro Tools and Ableton and, and Logic. It was eye-opening and exciting. And it was one of those things where you get your like the, the book of classes you can take and you're like, I wanna take all of these. I was learning how to play jazz for the first time. I'd grown up in that classical space and Broadway musicals and songbooks, Beatles. Like I did not know how to play jazz. I was uh, in the room next to Charlie Puth who did fairly well for himself. Um, I'll say that I, I have never been jealous until 
he got to do the that song on the Fast and the Furious soundtrack. I have a, a weird passion for those movies. <laughs> it's not a career path that really exists. To go be a songwriter isn't something that you start throwing applications in, get a LinkedIn set up, and it's it doesn't work that way. You're, you throw everything in the you throw your hands in the air, go to Nashville or New York or LA, that's what they always say. And you start networking with people until you like create a relationship. That did not play to my strengths as someone who was not an extreme extrovert and also did not have the financial backing to sort of just like get an apartment in New York and start hanging out with people. The whole landscape for for the arts has changed so much because of different technologies that it's really hard to, even if you make it, you don't make it. I have a friend who played at Coachella and still, you know, struggles month to month to pay rent. All that matters is how many people Spotify his stuff and <laughs> the streams pay nothing. Musical artists these days is to like go viral on Instagram and then like stay at it. None of that was really figured out yet, but also the old way had sort of died too. There weren't record labels like guaranteeing you an album. So I was like basically feeling like, what what the hell am I going to do after school? I connected a lot with professors who were doing theory and harmony. Pam started doing private lessons with him for, for music theory and composition. But ultimately that path leads to being an adjunct at a college. And that's a pretty abused workforce as well. You get 20000 a year and <laughs> you take all the classes that the full-time professors don't want. So again, it was this, this calculation of like, how far down this path do I want to go? And what do I want out of my life? Getting my master's in music composition. And I had to do a lot of writing a job where I would go after school to an elementary school and, you know, basically hang out with fourth and fifth graders and play and organize events, you know, activities for them. My boss there was actually, he had a master's in creative writing. And so he decided he wanted to write some musicals. And so I ended up writing the music. And we wrote three musicals that were performed by fourth and fifth graders, where he would write the script and I would write the music. And then I'd sit there and play the piano and guitar and do the lights and he would direct. And um, they were, that was a pretty fun, uh, unexpected side quest. I went to a number of festivals that were pretty exciting. Um, I got to do a lot of really cool things, especially in Europe. In Europe, they uh, fund the arts. <laughs> they don't do that really that much in the US. I did a, a sound installation in a, in a gallery in Graz in Austria. I did another sound installation in um, some, some ruins outside of Rome. Got to work with a lot of famous composers um, especially at Darmstadt, which is a very famous festival in the like <laughs> hyper niche contemporary music world. And then did some festivals in Boston. There was a lot of fun activity, but the whole point is just, hey, you have a string quartet, write a string quartet, have it performed. You would, uh, you know, apply for um, this festival, get in find out you're doing an installation and you'd have months to think about it, but then you'd have like a week to set it up. It was always that like logistical nightmare of like, 
oh crap, of course there's something that I need that I didn't think of that now I have to find a hardware, like, and I'm in Austria, so I don't know how to find a hardware. <laughs> if I'm completely honest, a lot of this stuff does not sound good as like a, you know, if, if society agrees upon what sounds good, this stuff does not. <laughs> it's much more scientific and um, you're trying to explore different relationships between, you know, overtones and you have reasons for doing the things you're doing, but they're, they're more academic usually than they are like just sonic pleasure. What made me happiest was not being a composer. I got to a point where I was doing the notation using Adobe Illustrator. I was feeling really uh, restricted by notation software. They make software that's specifically for musicians to write down music. That software is really good at doing the normal things that you do when writing down music, and it's really bad at doing anything else. I just got really excited about that new set of tools, and I did get to a point where I stopped caring what it sounded like. I just wanted it to look good. There is not much of a path there. You probably first have to go get a PhD. It, hopefully it's funded, but even that's going to be like, a, you know, 20 grand a year and a lot of work. And then you become an adjunct and hopefully someday you can become a full-time professor. That's not a life that I was excited about. Some of the smartest, most talented composers I know work in tech now. I was a realist in the sense that I'm like, if these guys <laughs> pivoted to tech, should I like, you know, go do five years at a PhD program and then do what they're already doing? I started working with a guy who had been doing this already. And he taught me a lot about, about how to use Illustrator, how to do it well. I was doing a lot of things the hard way because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, you copy and paste something a thousand times and then realize you want to change it. So. <laughs> I used to have a book here called Behind Bars and it's like, I don't know, it's over a thousand pages, it's, it's huge. And it's just rules about notation in music. And I'm like, here's a design system. Here's a centuries old design system. You need to know like what to do if you want an alto saxophone to overblow for a multiphonic. Here's how you notate that, right? But I still at that point had not heard of UX. Ultimately I looked into like coding boot camps, and then found UX through that. And that's when I realized that that seemed to be quite connected to this idea of designing something, testing how it works with a user. You know, I, I like to play board games a lot. And I, I often talk about it this way and say, like, if I had been playing a board game and I realized that, like, this was my goal and I wasn't collecting enough resources <laughs> to reach my goal, I would pivot my strategy. There was no oh no, like I can never play piano again. You know, there, it's a very simple thing. It was just in order to reach the goals that I have, you know, home ownership, having a kid, you need more resources to do those things. You know, a lot of my hours in the day were spent sitting in front of Illustrator and it seemed like this would allow me to sit in front of, at the time it was going to be Sketch instead. I had applied to this um, a master's program at Dartmouth in digital music and they let in like three people a year and there are quite a few more than three applicants and I had gotten waitlisted. And so I was like, okay, one of these other people is going to go somewhere else and maybe I still have a shot. Right. 
And then, so then like later in the summer when I got like the confirmation that like those, the three people got in and accepted, I was like, you know what? <laughs> I was sort of like, screw this. <laughs> I need to do something else. If you want to pivot, don't ask for advice from people who know you. Because all the people who know you are going to just think about the investment you've put into the thing you've been doing. I quit my job to do a full-time track and, you know, I kind of went all in. Like, here's my last ditch effort to, you know, try a pivot. And then like a day before it started, they like canceled that cohort because there weren't enough people. And I was super stressed because I had quit my job to do this. So I was like, they're like, do you want to come back in six months for the next one? I'm like, no. <laughs> they tried to make it better by giving me like uh, two free short courses. And then I signed up for a different boot camp that was coming up sooner. Um, and that was Design Lab because it's like less than half the price of General Assembly. And uh you know, it's 15 weeks instead of 10. And it seems like it's a little more thorough than some of the stuff I've seen. Anything remotely related to the the design piece, like the physical production piece of design, loved it. The uh, sort of user testing stuff also felt very familiar because I really did have to sit down with musicians and like talk about things and try to gauge their response, right? The things that were really new were like, you know, card sorting. And I'd be like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? um, all these research techniques that I honestly still don't feel like I understand half the time. But it was all exciting. Uh, I was just very, very excited to, to dive in. I think I fell for the same trap a lot of people fall for at that stage where they think that like the 90% of the work is like making it pretty and 10% is like the like thinking part. When I was almost done with Design Lab, a company reached out uh, to recruit me. And that was super exciting. That's not the most common thing to happen when you're coming out of a boot camp is to have a recruiter reach out before you graduate. So I was feeling like really like, oh, nice. Like I've got this. Of course, like time operates differently in the corporate landscape than in the landscape of someone who wants a job. You know, it's like, yeah, we'll talk to you in January and then we'll interview you in February. And it's like, what? Why is this going to take three months? Ultimately ended up getting that job. It was at a, a company called, uh, well, it's a company called UL. You've probably seen it. It's everywhere. If you like look at your batteries or a gas pump, you will see UL as a logo. But this was for a little branch in, near Boston that did human factors engineering. So basically like, hey, uh, a medical company is trying to make a new machine. We wanna see if it works and like how people interact with it and make sure it can get like FDA approval. I spent a little bit of time there working on like a laser eye surgery machine design. It was in like a software I'd never heard of and in like a weird corporate office where I had to have a button, up, you know, button shirt. There was a thing in the memo that was like, there was casual Fridays, but then it said, no jeans, please. I also lived like an hour and a half commute away. So I would wake up, have to drive an hour and a half. And then they had, you know, a policy you had to be there. Like they talked about flexible hours. And what they meant was be here between seven and eight thirty in the morning and then leave between four and five thirty in the afternoon. 
You have to take an hour lunch that's unpaid. So you're there for nine hours a day. My manager was remote and there were no other designers in this office. They were only in Chicago and the Netherlands. I'd have overlap with the person I was working with for like two hours in the morning and then just like be completely on my own with like no guidance at like my first role working in software I'd never used on like laser eye surgery machines. So I don't even know what I'm doing at all, right? Like they don't cover that <laughs> at Design Lab. A couple of weeks later, had an interview at Zipcar. Didn't get it, but I did a design project, you know, whatever. They always make you do those for interviews. Just get over it. And the manager there was super nice. And he's like, I'm sorry, we're going to like go with someone else. But if you want, I can give you some feedback. And like that never happens. Managers don't do that. You just get some automated rejection. So I was like, okay. Like, you know, it was very hard in that moment to agree to get on the phone with this guy who just rejected me. He gave me a bunch of really great feedback. I had another uh, design project I needed to do the next week, implemented all that feedback. Then I got a job at Grubhub. So it worked out really well. I worked at that, you know, medical place for like three weeks. And then when I left, it was the same day that the, the Notre Dame Cathedral was burning. And when I told the guy, like the boss, he was like, you know, this is the second worst thing that's happened today. Like he was super intense about me quitting. They had also flown in a designer from Chicago to help me like onboard me, but no one told me that that's why she was there. And so I didn't like tell them, Hey, please don't, I might not be here in a week or something. Right. I <laughs> just like, it was a, it was, it was weird. I will say though, the, the manager who hired me there was awesome. And I think is a very good designer. Music already hadn't panned out, you know, arguably. I didn't really, there was something about that not panning out that made me really not afraid of something not panning out. Cause it was like, okay, then I'll try something else. I think one skill that's overlooked is the ability to make choices, to just make a decision. I think in design, we can get really, we can get, you know, paralyzed by all of the inputs. There's research, there's data, um, but at some point, someone has to like make a call and just move forward. And when you're doing composition, there's literally no one to, there is no data. There are no real inputs. <laughs> it's just like constantly making decisions on your own based off of your own preferences and your own expertise. And so I think that that has turned into, and I'm not going to pretend I make all the right decisions, but I think making a wrong decision fast is better than making a right decision slow. I'm focusing on design systems right now. I'm trying to figure out if I want to stay in design systems or if I want to move back into to product design. In terms of like, uh, you know, the IC management question, I don't think I'm moving into management anytime soon. Um, I just see calendars littered with meetings that I would I would not want to go to. I would miss doing the work. So I do want to obviously keep leveling up in the IC world, get to lead principal and all that. I mean, I've learned a lot. I've I've learned I've learned a lot about corporate America and about how all of this works. A lot of these boot camps 
as much as they try to explain the whole PM engineer triangle, whatever, like you don't really know what any of that means in practice until you start working somewhere and then you work somewhere else and it's different. There is no such thing as a design process. Like it's all just, there are a bunch of things, a bunch of tools you can use at any moment to try to accomplish something, but like no one is out here double diamonding it consistently for each project. There isn't enough time to do the whole process. And I think that's partly because of a push to experiment more and more and more and more and more and do these multivariant tests. And I think that, I think that decision, I think analysis paralysis, I think that there are so many decisions that we could make by just having someone put a blindfold on them and say A or B, and then just ship it. Instead, we like run a test and we have to wait for the results of that test. And it's like, negligibly different but we follow the one that's doing better right and then we have to build off of that i've been laid off before and i was laid off because i was i was owning a design system at a startup and my manager had already left we were hiring a manager we didn't have one so i was reporting to the director of product no matter how many times i explained what a design system was she did not care and did not understand the value and so it was very much just like, uh, who should we lay off? Oh, well, I don't even know what Aaron does. So let's get rid of him. That's really what it is. You have these pyramid power structures and you're like, the number of managers that are around me on a given day that I just am like, why? Just keep working at things. Don't worry too much about um, what people think. Because that was something at that point in my life I worried about way too much. Done like a be rude intentionally to prove you don't care what people think. Like not that sort of, you know, you know, middle schooler, uh, you know, definition of that, but like a make decisions and move forward and don't stress about, you know, I felt guilt for a week when I quit that job that had been pretty miserable because I felt like I had like hurt that company or something. And then like, you know, two years go by and I get laid off by a company without even like a, you know, you wake up and you get a meeting on your calendar for like 11 and you're like, oh, I guess I'm laid off. What? Like now I'm unemployed and they didn't care at all. You know, like if you're in that stage where you're like asking people, just do it because, you know, it's been a little bit of a, a journey for me and I had some emotional weight to the decision. But ultimately, you know, I've recently started writing music again, and it is, uh, it's a hell of a lot nicer to write music when, you know, your basic needs are met. Nothing is stopping you from just writing music whenever you want, while also having a job. that's a wrap on season four i want to thank aaron for sharing their journey and all of you for listening we'll see you next season